me This is Based in Fact, a true crime podcast. Join host Lisa O'Brien as she examines America's most infamous true crime cases through the lens of the court, not the court of public opinion. No spin, no theories, no rumors, just facts. Here's Lisa O'Brien. In episode 11, Kyle and I are talking about the May 5th, 1993 murders of Christopher Byers, Steve Branch, and Michael Moore in West Memphis, Arkansas. Their bodies were found bound and naked in a ditch in an area known to locals as Robin Hood Hills, a patch of woods bordering the boys' subdivision. On June 3rd, 1993, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. were arrested after Miss Kelly confessed to West Memphis detectives. The three were convicted after two separate trials in 1994. Their campaign in the court of public opinion started with Paradise Lost, the child murders in Robin Hood Hills, and continues today with press releases alleging that the state of Arkansas has an obligation to allow retesting of DNA evidence. Kyle and I will talk about the evidence against the three killers, their direct appeals and state post-conviction claims and outcomes, the inconclusive DNA testing conducted between 2005 and 2011, and the Alford pleas, which were entered instead of the three killers presenting their allegedly exculpatory evidence at the new trial hearings that were scheduled to begin in December of 2011. And welcome back, Kyle. It's been a while. Yeah, good evening. Good to be back. Uh, We tried to record earlier today and we had some technical difficulties caused by power outages in New Orleans. And um, so now hopefully we will be able to get this one in the books. So how has your time off been? It's been good, been kind of crazy with the end of the school year. So getting all of that stuff wrapping up, it's been pretty crazy, but the summer is brings its own craziness, but at least a little bit predictable craziness. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's been, feels like one kid activity after another for the last month. And didn't you have a child graduate? I did. Yes. Sending one, one graduating from high school, sending her off to college next year. And then one, um, quote unquote, graduating from middle school. So yeah, a lot of those kind of end of school activities, you know, kind of the end of not only the school year, but the end of the kind of that phase in their life. So preparing Mm -hmm. one to leave high school and one to enter. Well, at least you didn't have two teenagers at the same time. Yeah, that's very true. Because <laughs> so, I know my my parents had three of us because we were <laughs> close in age, and they had three of three girls, three teenage girls at the same time. Yes, Not God bless fun, your dad. Not a fun thing. So, all right. Well, let's go ahead and uh, we're going to talk about the West Memphis Three case, uh, of course, as something we we both remarked on earlier was uh, this is actually one of the first innocence fraud cases 
and probably the first to use the internet to yeah, spread absolutely. misinformation. Yes, it is the OG uh, misinformation case for sure. Yeah, never, you know, so many people out there just immediately they hear this case like, oh, wrongly convicted, satanic panic, they're innocent, mm -hmm. railroaded by incompetent cops. It's like all the talking points come out. Because they listen to Metallica and wore black. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, but uh, as anybody who really looks at the case and looks at the documents associated with the case, rather than having people tell them what the documents mean, um, you see that there's a lot more to the story than that. So uh, the story, of course, begins on May 5th, 1993. Steve, Chris, and Michael were riding bikes in their neighborhood in West Memphis, Arkansas. Uh, and that was during the afternoon and into the evening of, of May 5th. They were last seen at around 6 p.m., headed in the direction of Robin Hood Woods. The woods were comprised of two patches of woods bordering the neighborhood and separated or bisected by 10 mile bayou. Uh, and you and I have each, you've crossed that pipe. Yeah, actually um, we did a spring break trip in that area um, just this year. And so, yeah, actually a couple of months ago, walked across that pipe. Yeah, it is an experience. Yeah, absolutely. To say the least. Um, and for anybody who, who hasn't seen it for themselves, it's a, a rather large pipe. I think that the, uh, the, the ditch in the woods was a kind of overflow. So when the bayou got too high, I guess water from the bayou would be channeled into the, right. into the uh, ditch on the other side and there was a culvert and all that stuff um but it's a rather large pipe and then on either side are two boards um a couple inches they're like two by four but they're are they multiple boards end to end or are they one single board no i, never, I think there's yeah as i recall there's one on each side so yeah it's kind of like a little yeah like two you know like a you know, it's a decent size, as I recall, you know, not yeah. gigantic, but enough for, you know, a, a person to walk, you know, pretty comfortably on each mm -hmm. side of the pipe bridge. Yeah, so it really and is. It is. That's why they call it a pipe bridge, not just a pipe, because, yeah. you know. But there are no handrails. No, exactly. Yeah, no handrails. <laughs> so, uh, if you lose your balance, you're going to go down and then you're going to go <laughs> into the bayou. Um, and get so, attacked by and murdered by a bunch of uh, killer turtles. Yeah, killer snapping turtles. Yeah. Um, so, of course, I, I and all the time when I was there, the ditch was still there, although they had built a uh, a passover. They had filled in part of it and made a culvert and mm. built a passover so that people weren't climbing down and climbing back up, because at the time of the murders, Basically, you climb down and climb back up. Right. Um, but uh, when I was there, the level of water was not sufficient for any type of aquatic life at all. Uh, and I never saw a snapping turtle on the sides of the 10 mile bayou ditch or in the bayou in any way, shape or form. 
No, it was the same thing. And um, yeah, exactly. When I was there, I didn't see any, any turtles either. I think the biggest thing for folks that, you know, think about it, that, you know, they have bulldozed. I don't know. I think it's been a few years ago, but the woods are gone today. So basically yeah. you can actually see from the interstate actually, you know, into the neighborhood, which you would yeah. not have been able to do in 1993. I believe that was done probably sometime. I want to say around 2005, 2006. If that I recall. sounds right. It seems like it has been a quite a while ago. Yeah. And the owner was worried about liability with people going back there. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, he decided, and I think they filled in the ditch and everything. So there's no, there's nothing. Yeah, there there's, now. yeah. I, the, the ditch where the boys were found. I, yeah, that's right. I think it has been completely filled in. So it's, yeah. it, it almost looks like a, it's not exactly a pasture, but more like a pasture now than it did. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was, it was, a there was a, a farm field. I think it had grown wheat at one time as well. Hmm. Um, but there was a farm field and then there were the woods and they weren't real wide. Um, they weren't real big. So, uh, and something else that, that uh, we talked about earlier the woods that were on the opposite side of the bayou in the neighborhood were very thick and very overgrown. And so you couldn't have gone into those woods if you wanted to. So that was, you know, there, there was a lot of discussion about um, the kids weren't going into the woods on the other side of 10 mile bayou. They were going on the ones right there in the neighborhood, but no, anybody who lived down there knew those woods were overgrown and very thick and, and you could barely even walk. You certainly wouldn't have bike trails and be able to ride your bike. Right. So, um, and something else that you remarked on, uh, this was at a time when kids were not as carefully watched as they are today. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, back then, you know, kids would, as I think we both of our experiences growing up, you know, yeah, kids would go out. Sometimes they'd be pushed out of the house. They get out of here, go do something, go play. And yeah, mm -hmm. they'd ride their bikes. They'd run around. They just make fun out of, you know, whatever they could figure out, make up a mm -hmm. game, play in the woods. And yeah, mm -hmm. when those street lamps came on, it was time to go home. And so, yeah, it was a much different time. You know, people, you know, parents weren't as paranoid, you know, right. kids just played outside and did stuff, which becomes germane because, again, when people talk about, you know, why did it take so long for the parents to react? It's no great conspiracy, but it was kind of normal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And well, of course, they make a big deal. You know, it depends on on what they're trying to prove. If they're trying to prove that Mark Byers is in a, is guilty, then they say, oh, well, him reporting Chris missing at 810 is you know, proof that he killed him because he's the only one who knows something bad happened at 810. Right. You know, or um, I, I think uh, recently Rob Ruff was talking to one of the Clementes and they were saying how um, Terry Hobbs waiting until 9 p.m. to report Steve missing is somehow proves he killed him. Um, yeah, it's at, crazy. 
And it's interesting when you look at statements that were made um, at the time, Mark Byers did not put Chris with Michael and Steve when he initially reported Chris missing. It was Dana Moore who actually said, no, Chris, Michael and Steve were together. All together. And um, I don't think there's anything from Terry putting all three together. Which you'd think he would have known if he'd killed him. Right. But, you know, um, so, yeah, that's uh, that they didn't they didn't call the police at five o'clock when they were supposed to be home. They didn't call them until seven or eight when they really, really should have been home was because in those days. And this is one of the cases that kind of changed how parents monitor their kids outside. Because because of this happening right. in their own neighborhood, that that it got a little bit more, um, they were a little gave it a little bit more scrutiny. Yeah, everybody became afraid that you know there was a child, a kidnapper on every yeah. corner. And I think it it had a it had a ripple effect across the country. This case and a few other child abduction cases had kind of that ripple effect where parents thought, okay, you can't. You can't let your kids just go out and run around the neighborhood anymore because something bad can happen. So, um, again, the the boys were reporting missing, reported missing. Uh, Chris and Mike were reported at 8, 10 p.m. And then Steve was reported at 9. Um, prior to that, the parents had all separately looked for their child. Um but then once the boys were reported missing, there were more neighbors and more friends of siblings and things like that became involved and a more uh, concentrated search began. But for some reason, the West Memphis Police Department did not join that search officially. Um, and that night, the Crittenden County search and rescue people were having a meeting. So they weren't available. And I know Pam Hobbs has, or Pam Hicks has said, you know, she's upset that West Memphis PD didn't get involved that night as she has every right to be. And Mark Byers tried to get search and rescue to come out, but they were in their meeting and they weren't available. The following morning on the 6th, uh, West Memphis police and several county agency, agencies did join the search and provided reinforcements. At around 1 p.m., a juvenile probation officer observed a shoe floating in a ditch in the woods across 10 Mile Bayou. At 1.45 p.m., Sergeant Mike Allen, who was a West Memphis PD detective, fell into the ditch while trying to retrieve the shoe and in doing so dislodged Michael Moore's body which had been in the ditch bottom. Um, Brian Ridge, another West Memphis detective, searched the ditch bottom on his hands and knees, and at 2.59, he located the bodies of Chris and Steve. Steve was found 27 feet south of Michael. Chris was found 32 feet south of Michael and five feet from Steve. All three boys were naked and bound wrist to ankle by their own shoelaces. Substantially, all of their clothing was also found in the ditch near Michael's body. 
Steve and Michael's bikes were found in 10 mile bayou directly under the pipe bridge crossing the bayou. And it was Chris's, uh, Michael's bike on one side and Steve's bike on the other. Like they had just been rolled out into the middle of the bayou and dumped from each side. Um, and I, I, I want to remark on something else too. Even though the water wasn't, it was about two to two and a half feet deep in the ditch, you could not visualize the bodies from above the water. It was only when, you know, like I said, when Mike yeah. Allen dislodged Michael, uh, when he essentially fell onto the area where Michael was, uh, and Brian Ridge had to search on his hands and knees on the ditch bottom till he found Chris, uh, Chris and Steve. Hmm. During. I can't oh, imagine. I No, I just, I, I, you know, hearing it, you know, no matter how many times you hear it, just kind of processing it, mm -hmm. having to discover that I can't imagine what an impact that would have from those policemen. I mean, you know, you're going to see some crazy stuff as a cop, but I don't think anything prepares yeah. you for seeing that. When Brian Ridge testified at a post-conviction hearing for Eccles in about 1999, and he actually lost composure while he testified about that. Uh, and then later, he would not talk about it to anyone. Uh, he left police work for a while, but then ended up coming back. Mm. Uh, and right I, shortly before I moved to West Memphis or moved to Marion uh, in Arkansas, Brian Ridge actually saved another officer's life. He was the officer was in the parking lot, uh, end of his shift, getting his equipment out of the car. And somehow he triggered the shotgun in his car and inflicted very serious wounds on himself. And if Brian Ridge hadn't gotten to him and, and rendered first aid, he probably would not have survived. Um, so that was, that was a, wow. a really uh, huge accomplishment for Brian Ridge to, to be that, hands-on and saving someone else's life yeah no absolutely um so during the initial investigation the west memphis pd followed up on various leads which included looking at local teenagers who were known to dabble in the cult in the occult in an initial interview on may 10th 1993 damien eccles gave answers to various questions that made him a suspect but the west memphis pd had insufficient evidence to arrest him at that time now, one of the reasons they looked at Damien Eccles uh, as being involved in the occult is because that's what he told the juvenile officers every time they talked to him. He made statements like, I'm in a cult. I'm in a cult that's about to graduate to human sacrifice. Um, and, you know, he told them why. And he says, oh, I was just messing with him. Well, guess what, sweetie? You messed with him and it bit you on the ass, didn't it? Because right, they took you seriously. You well, may that, have been joking, but they took you seriously. 
Well, and, you know, that's the thing is people, you know, there's this weird, you know, disinformation out there that these were the only three guys in the entire state of Arkansas that listened to heavy metal and wore Metallica t-shirts. When in reality, there were lots of kids in the early 90s that listened to Metallica and wore black t-shirts and had long hair, Mm -hmm. but there weren't a lot that you know talked you know that were known or at least you know had reportedly you know killed a dog killed other animals Mm -hmm. talked about being you know wanting to murder children i mean you know you know damian eccles was not just the -the run-of-the-mill metallica fan he was a you know lunatic who talked about being a lunatic and seemed to get off on making other people think he was a lunatic yeah he cultivated that and he cultivated the um you know, he's the one that told people uh, about people supposedly seeing him in two places at one time. That came from him. And one of the things that, you know, is always a big trigger for me and and basically an indicator for me that the person who was convicted is guilty is that everybody's lying except that person and the people advocating for that person. They're the only ones telling the truth. Exactly. They're the only, yes. Well, and I think it's this is a good time to think about too. Oh, he he wasn't really into all this. It was he was just kidding. Well, you know, he has had about as much luck as OJ finding the real killers, which I believe mm-hmm. they said they were going to do. But mm-hmm. yet he spent all his time pretending to be you know, a magician and, and a magical, you know, mystery magician. Mm-hmm. You know, he, I think he's even written a couple of books about it, probably just to raise money through GoFundMe. Yeah. But, you know, it's not like he's all of a sudden become a an accountant. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. he's definitely continued on this path of, you know, yeah. whatever he occult kind of worship. You know, he's definitely he, who he is. The Halloween costume he chose for 2011 was a vampire. Exactly. Yeah. And I think his favorite author is Aleister Crowley. Yeah. And, and you know, and he got caught lying on the stand about not knowing anything about Aleister Crowley. And yet Aleister Crowley, his son and Jason Baldwin are the two names, you know, are the names he writes in code on his little piece of paper right. in his cell. Um, and it's so funny that uh, I actually argued with someone that they illegally, the, their allegation was his cell was illegally searched. <laughs> I'm like, sweetie. When you're in jail, you yeah. have no expectation yeah. of privacy. They don't exactly. have to have a search warrant. They don't have to have probable cause. You know, they can say, I don't like your face and toss your cell. And if they find contraband, that's on you. <laughs> <laughs> so, but on June 3rd, 1993, West Memphis police brought Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. in for questioning because he was a known associate of Eccles. After four hours, Miss Kelly confessed to participating in the murders and named Eccles and Jason Baldwin as his accomplices. Uh, and now it's kind of interesting, too, because that's another thing that is misrepresented. Um, Eccles and Baldwin pretend that they didn't even know Miss Kelly that well. Uh, and he certainly wasn't a friend and never hung out, hang out, hung out with them. But when you look at statements from other people and, and contemporaneous statements when 
at the time of the murders and during the investigation, Baldwin and Miss Kelly in grade school were best of friends. And, uh, you know, when they got, when, when Baldwin became friends with Eccles, they kind of had Miss Kelly around. And I think they had Miss Kelly around because he was pliable and he was somebody that they could get to do their bidding. Exactly. So, uh, but yeah, it's, and a lot of people, I mean, a lot of witnesses, a lot of, of uh, people aligned with Eccles and Baldwin all, you know, put Miss Kelly with them as a person that hung around with them. So exactly. Well, I th- aren't they on video too? I mean, is, aren't they in there? Somebody the that pool, did a video yeah, at the, at the pool. pool hall or skating oh, I mean, rink. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is not a gigantic city, right? I mean, every, mm-hmm. they, everybody yeah. pretty much knows everybody. And they all lived in Marion. Right. Um, and I think at one time, Baldwin lived in the trailer park where Jesse Miss Kelly's father lived. I think that's and then exactly. they moved to Lakeshore. Eccles lived in West Memphis, but he had lived in Lakeshore and he was staying in Lakeshore with Domini Tier during that time. So, um, and, and the, the two trailer parks, Lakeshore's on one side of the uh, I-40. Or I think it's, no, it's I-55. Yeah, is on one side of I-55 going toward Marion from West Memphis. And Miss Kelly's is on the other side. Right. You know, um, have you ever been to those trailer parks? I have not. No, I, I wanted to, but I ran, ran out of time. Uh, your next trip, you should, you yes. should check out the two trailer parks. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, so they're, you know, right across the street and they went they all went to the same school because they all went to the Marion High School. So, well, Miss Kelly dropped out in like ninth grade. Um, and Eccles dropped out, I think, in, when he was in ninth grade, because he was a little bit older than they were. So on the third, arrest warrants were issued for Miss Kelly, Eccles, and Baldwin, and search warrants were also issued for their trailers, as well as the trailer of Domini Tears, who was Eccles' pregnant girlfriend. They were indicted on three counts each of capital murder. Eccles was represented by Val Price and Scott Davidson. Baldwin was represented by Paul Ford and George Robin Wadley. And Miss Kelly was represented by Dan Stidham and Greg Crow. Um, And I think the public defender's office had a conflict. For some reason, probably perhaps because they had represented Mark Byers or um, because they couldn't, they could only, they were representing Eccles because he was a death penalty and, you know, so they couldn't represent Baldwin and Miss Kelly. Um, But I've never really untangled that with the actual pleadings. This is just my memory of what I've read. So, Miss Kelly, uh, their trials were moved fairly early from Crittenden County, where the murders occurred. Miss Kelly's was moved first because he had given a confession that was going to be used against him. So he could not be tried with Eccles and Baldwin. 
Um, and his case was moved from Crittenden to Corning, which is in Clay County. And uh, in February 1994, Miss Kelly was convicted of one count of first degree murder for Michael's death and two counts of second degree murder for Stevie and Chris. And the reason he was convicted of first degree with Michael is because in his statement to Westminster's police, he says, Michael ran away and I chased him down and brought him back. So, but for Miss Kelly's action, Michael might have been able to get away. And Michael might not have been killed. Uh, he was sentenced to life on the first degree murder charge and two 20 year terms on the second degree murder counts. His conviction and sentence were affirmed on direct appeal and became final in 1996. Um, now, after he was convicted, he did want to talk to the prosecutors and he did express a desire to testify against Eccles and Baldwin who were due to be, go to trial within a few weeks yeah. um, there was a, a second statement taken with his attorney Dan Stidham there begging him not to talk not to you know give this statement um, and I think you know I, I to this day do not understand why Dan Stidham would not would want to help Eccles and Baldwin by keeping Miss Kelly off the stand. Yeah. And not help Miss Kelly get a reduction in his prison sentence. If he had testified, they would they were willing to knock off the life sentence. That is a yeah, that's always been odd to me as well. It's like, yeah. why wouldn't they say? We'll give you 25 years or 40 well, years, whatever it was. I, I think what would, what the agreement was is that they would recommend the first degree, that the, the life sentence be vacated and that he only be sentenced to the two 20 year terms, which 40 years he would have served 25. It seems right. In, you know, in Arkansas DOC. And then he would have been eligible for parole. With the life term, he would never be eligible for parole because you had to serve, I think, 80% or 70, 70 to 80% of your sentence. Yeah. And with a life sentence, there's no 70 or 80%. Well, I mean, and the funny part, too, is it's kind of one of those things that, you know, these, these claims they make sense in isolation, but they don't make sense together, which is mm -hmm. like, they talk about, oh, well, Jesse Miss Kelly, he's, you know, basically, you know, mentally handicapped, you know, he, he can barely function in society, but he can totally remember this plan that the police have told him, and he can totally remember how to make up this confession. Mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. just doesn't make any sense, right? It's like, yeah. you know, What's more likely you can remember what you actually experience and in all those details just about chasing Michael and Michael being found further away. Like, I mean, there's so many of those details and, and that, that he is, would not have known, but yet they believe is, he can just totally remember that. I mean, he can yeah. totally, the police can coach him and now like, Oh yeah, I can totally perfectly recall that. And, and that's a detail chasing Michael down, Michael running away. That's something they didn't know. No, that's exactly, something West Coast yeah. PD didn't know. Um, and yeah, they've given, and, and there's this, um, 
this allegation that the tape was turned on and off. No, it was not turned on and off. It was turned on. He gave his first confession. It was turned off. Some time passed. And then Gary Gitchell came back and the tape was turned on again. And he gave a follow-up statement. And then the tape was turned off. It wasn't... It, Bob Ruff, I think, portrays it as though they ask him a question, then they turn the tape off, tell him the answer, and then turn it back on for him to give the answer. And um, he has this weird, he had this weird thing about where well, you can hear they're tapping. So that means they're pointing at a picture and telling him which kid is which. Or you hear this or you hear that or, yeah. you know, and it's like, how can you, how could you say there are, visual clues when there's no videotape yeah that's well, speculating you know that's I, I get tired of giving him publicity but let's just remember the podcaster you mentioned previously when he was a fire chief of a town of like 300 people people were literally stealing money from his own department and he didn't notice so mm -hmm. i don't have a lot of confidence in him being able to investigate where his own butthole is pardon my language <laughs> but i mean you know oh he, boy he's twitter. not exactly president of the local mensa chapter the twitter verse is gonna love that one. <laughs> i usually get quoted on twitter but i bet you you are going to get quoted on twitter now <laughs> so um yeah so he ended up uh he got a raw deal and Really, when he was saying ineffective assistance of counsel, Dan Stidham said, yep, I was ineffective because I decided instead of helping my own client, I would help Eccles and Baldwin by keeping my client off the stand. Uh, and of course, Dan Stidham gives that whole, well, I didn't want him committing perjury. It's not up to you to decide whether or not he committed uh, perjury. Exactly. You know, you think it's perjury, but I, you know, as I understand it, he has confessed to you with his hand on a Bible. And the, the DAs were not anywhere around. So, you know, you don't want to believe it, but that's you. That's on you. Too bad. So sad. Sucks to be you because he was involved in this. Nobody gives a false confession 10 times. No. And substantially the same false confession in which they identify the same individuals. Uh, and, you know, Miss Kelly may not be the brightest bulb in the Christmas tree string. But he's smart enough to try to get one over on the cops. Well, that's like, yeah, that's exactly right. Because, I mean, I think he said, right, when he gave his first confession, he was trying to kind of fudge on the times, mm -hmm. you know, he so he's alibi. obviously more clever than the podcaster mm -hmm. fired fireman you mentioned because at least he had enough he was clever enough to try to you know fudge a little bit to say hey i'm gonna say enough to where they'll let me go home yeah but not enough for me to get in trouble maybe yeah. they'll maybe they'll go get the other two guys yeah and you know people don't understand too that you know miss kelly was not a scholar he has the communication skills of a turnip. Um, he's more articulate at hitting things and people 
than he is speaking. He can't use his words, so he uses his fists. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that was his reputation around town. And that's probably another reason that Eccles and Baldwin kept him around. Because then they could get him in trouble. Right. Uh, and yeah. people he was the guy that they get convinced to go do something stupid mm-hmm. and then they could all laugh while he went and did it. We all know yeah. people like that. Yeah. And um a- another thing that you know people uh don't remember is that in March of 1993, he attacked a girl with a brick for telling people that he did she didn't sleep with him because he was going around saying he had sex with her mm. and she said i didn't sleep with jesse miss kelly no freaking way <laughs> i wouldn't touch him with somebody else's hand uh but and and he attacked her with a brick um then there was a apparently he attacked a five-year-old kid like the year before and then uh, of course there's Eccles. you know year before the murders he's got multiple uh admissions into psychiatric hospitals twice in arkansas and once in oregon and those were resulting from the one in oregon resulted from threats made to his father and his family and their fear of him so you know the the they were not well adjusted um and i think baldwin's the Baldwin's the one that's kind of kept his dirty laundry quiet or it's been kept quiet. Although anybody who talks to his mother knows she's back crap crazy. Yeah. And, you know, he's a kid who has found his mother after unsuccessful suicide attempts on at least two occasions because she was not a happy woman no so um but yeah she was uh you know she's not she's not playing with a full deck she's a taco short of a combo (laughs) so um yeah i and i i i I don't mean that to be uh, well it is insensitive um but she it's the only way to describe it um so um Eccles and Baldwin were tried together uh their trial had been moved from Crittenden to Jonesboro in Craighead County Arkansas and that's another bit of myth that has been out there and you still see occasionally today is that they were tried in West Memphis And that is absolutely false. And anyone who thinks they were tried in West Memphis knows absolutely nothing about the case. Um, Including Eccles' current attorneys who are trying to get him DNA testing by filing in the wrong county. Um, In March of 1994, Eccles was convicted of three counts of capital murder and sentenced to death. Baldwin was convicted of three counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Their convictions and sentences were also affirmed on direct appeal and became final in 1997. And then in post-conviction, Eccles Rule 37 claims, which were filed around 1998, were denied by the trial court. And that 
claim was affirmed by the Arkansas Supreme Court. Eccles filed uh, some writ of error claims, uh, one that he wasn't competent to stand trial at the time of his trial, but that was rejected by the Arkansas Supreme Court because it was based on records and observations made of him during the pretrial period and, and during the trial. Uh, and then suddenly somebody saying, oh, wait, he wasn't, he wasn't competent. Uh, and there was also a competency determination after his conviction because he tried to drop all appeals and then changed his mind. A lot like, like his suicide attempts. You know, he would do something and then he would say, I'm going to kill myself. So somebody would stop it. Right. Just, yeah, just, uh... you know, uh, when he was in jail, uh, he, after the arrest for the, for, for these murders, he took, he hoarded some of his medication. He took it all at once. He immediately called the guard and said, I just took all my medication. I'm going to kill myself. And uh, have you ever seen the suicide note on the Marlboro cigarette box? No, I have not. So, okay. I'll, if I can find it, I'll, I'll find it and email it to you. Um, Eccles filed a federal writ of habeas corpus uh, in federal court, but that ended up being stayed because he filed uh a motion for new trial based on the results of DNA testing and um, the federal case could not proceed until all those state actions had been concluded. And of course they concluded with the offered plea in 2011. Uh, Baldwin and Miss Kelly filed rule 37 claims I think those claims were still pending. There had been hearings, but I don't know that they had ever been decided uh, by Judge Burnett. And the motions for new trial, they filed motions for new trial at the same time Eccles did or shortly after Eccles. And so those were all pending at the time of the Alfred police. So, um, and you know, the, the idea that all this was part of some grand conspiracy is the other thing. And that's every case that I've, I've talked about and researched is that direct appeal. Oh my gosh. It's part of the conspiracy. Even though all these things were done wrong at trial, even though they didn't get fair trials, the direct appeal, it was the fix was in. Like, no, they didn't win in direct appeal because they didn't prove that they didn't get a fair trial. He didn't exactly. win at Rule 37 because right. he didn't prove ineffective assistance of counsel or whatever other claims he was making. Um, and I'll have to look and see if I have any notes from the appellate and post-conviction pre-DNA. Because um, this is just a really quick summary I did um, to talk about the DNA. So, um, well, and go ahead. Well, I, was gonna, I mean, you know, there, 
the crazy conspiracy, you know, the massive police conspiracies are always funny because, you know, you think about, I think maybe the most famous of the, the innocence fraud cases is the Stephen Avery case. And it's like, you know what? The police did this mass conspiracy. They murdered this woman, framed Stephen Avery so he wouldn't win his civil judgment against the police. Mm -hmm. And it's like, actually, no, again, back to Occam's razor. The cops would have just killed him. Like, why would they? Right. Why would they? Why would they kill an innocent woman and set up this mass conspiracy to keep him from winning his judgment? If they were that sophisticated, they would have just killed him, and you know they would have never solved the crime. It's kind of mm -hmm. like the same thing. If they had it out for Damien Eccles, they could have done something else besides right. kill three little boys and blame it on him, and you know all this crazy conspiracy stuff. It's just yeah. way too complicated by a mile. And and I think in Stephen Avery's case, if they were going to do that, Teresa Hallback's full body would be in his trailer under exactly. his bed with exactly. her DNA all over the place. Because yeah, they don't they don't do a very good thing. job of framing people. Yeah, that's that's another thing in this case because people say that they framed Eccles Baldwin and Skelly. But if they were going to frame him, I'm sure they would have done more than inconclusive fibers and hairs. Exactly. That was the only physical evidence that was ever admitted against them. Yeah. Um, you know, they would have had victims' blood on their clothing. Since they yeah. couldn't they couldn't put Eccles and Baldwin's blood or or they would have put it on the victims' clothing. You know, I mean so and I haven't in all my years even I have not, I have yet to see an actual true frame. Maybe because it doesn't actually get this far. Maybe right. it's attempted, but it doesn't make it. Yeah, I think they're only in movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, and as uh, everybody knows, and I'm not going to go into too much detail, the attempts to DNA test began in 2002, but uh, contrary to what the propaganda would have us all believe, they really don't want to test everything. They don't want to test Eccles' necklace, and they don't want to test Miss Kelly's shirt um, because they don't want to risk that the victim's blood is going to be found on those two items. Because that there there would end their claims of actual innocence. Um, they want to test uh, the ligatures. They want to test, and and it's not really a. They're not really risking all that much testing evidence that was all submerged under the water for eighteen hours, along with the bodies. And the results of the DNA testing that was done kind of confirms that because most of the profiles that were recovered from evidence belong to the victims. And they had very few items that were, excuse me, that were full profiles that did not belong to the victims. 
Um, and then they had uh, a few hairs. Again, the majority of the hairs were from the victims. And uh, with the exception of two that didn't exclude Hobbs or uh, his friend, David Jacoby. So uh, all those years and all that testing and all that money and really the results were inconclusive. And they did not identify another perpetrator with nuclear DNA. And so, of course, now, of course, they have misrepresented the mitochondrial DNA as conclusive when it is not. Because mitochondrial DNA is passed unchanged from mother to child. So that hair that doesn't exclude Terry Hobbs also doesn't exclude his mother, his grandmother, his maternal aunts and uncles, his siblings, um, his sister's kids, you know, whatever many sisters he has, yeah. all their children are going to have the same identical mitochondrial DNA. That's just like uh, my uncle Gary, my sisters, my two sisters, my nephew, we all have ident identical mitochondrial DNA. Well, and I think, right, didn't it match like 98,000 people in a kind of broader it, region, you know? Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to speak to the statistics because I'm really not good at the statistics, but there's another problem with the um, mitochondrial DNA results. The hair that was actually on the ligature differed at one nucleotide from Hobbes's mitochondrial DNA. So really, in the universe, it matches, it, it can exclude Hobbes, but for that one nucleotide difference. Mm. Uh, but it also can't exclude anybody who has the identical mitochondrial DNA sequence as the actual evidence hair. So it's kind of two universes. Right. Or two well, sets that aren't it, excluded. Well, I mean, I would say regard, I mean, regardless, you would expect, I mean, a family member's hair being on a kid isn't that crazy. Right. You know, it's not like, right. you know, if somebody, you know, if Damien Eccles' hair was found, that would be unusual but not a family member i mean you know they Correct. live in the house they're gonna you know drop hairs they're gonna pick it up i mean that's and to me that's not that interesting they they make a lot of the fact that it was on the ligature binding michael but we don't know whose shoelace who that ligature right, belonged to it that could it might have been michael and it might have been chris but it also might have been steve and if it's terry's hair on steve's lace it loses any evidentiary significance right well and i mean i mean i'm again i admit i'm totally speculating but yeah. i mean the the hair could have been brushed from stevie's body to the killer's body and then mm -hmm. fallen off while they're tying literature i mean it's mm -hmm. yeah. it, that is not an insane scenario right um well, the the theory with the fibers was that these were fibers in the clothing environment that were picked up by eccles 
and left on the victim's clothing and picked up by Baldwin and left on the victim's clothing, even though the clothing that was consistent with those fibers did not belong to either Eccles or Baldwin. Right. And so it's a, kind of the same thing. Um, yeah. And then the, the hair on the tree stump, it's the same issue with the nucleotide. One nucleotide difference. Yes. Um, so basically two sets. There's the people with the identical mitochondrial DNA that couldn't be excluded and people with David Jacoby's DNA, mitochondrial DNA that can't be excluded. But it's never been conclusive. Yet they will, and I have seen places where Eccles has done this. He has said they found the stepfather's hair. No, they didn't find his hair. They found a hair that doesn't exclude him as a donor. Eccles' own expert at the at the uh, press conference said, well, th- we couldn't use this to accuse Terry Hobbs. And the hair with David Jacoby was found on a tree stump at the crime scene. And it was found on June 3rd because the fiber and hair examiner came to West Memphis to conduct the searches and went to the crime scene and found the hair while she was searching the crime scene. And didn't the, um, didn't the failed fireman also make a blanket proclamation that there's no way Jake Jacoby could be involved that he's met him and he has deemed him trustworthy or something like that as I recall yeah I I really um yeah he did and you know but he's just trying to milk as much money from this as he can he had his podcast which had to stop suddenly because of some uh earth-shattering legal development that never happened yeah, he was just, he had new evidence, right? He was going to solve the yeah. case in the next yeah. six months. And then he had his oxygen show. Um, and, and I think that that's why the podcast had to stop because oxygen said, we're not going to make a, we're not going to pay you to make a documentary for, you know, when you're going to reveal it on your podcast. And I watched the documentary and it didn't reveal shit about anything it was just a bunch of self-serving bullshit uh about the dna testing and again this is another place where bob ruff is lying to you people and you don't realize it the state does not have an obligation to conduct dna testing the state does not have an obligation to allow eccles to conduct dna testing and the state sure as shit never had an obligation to allow Bob Ruff to conduct DNA testing. The future investigation uh, that was supposedly promised to the killers with the Alford police by mm-hmm. the prosecutor was never reduced to writing. Nothing in the Alford plea document says, but they can continue investigating and we'll look at anything they give us and take it seriously, and we'll do any testing they want to do in the future. Nothing says that. And the most Ellington ever said is he's willing to look at whatever they bring him. And what did they bring him in 2013? And it wasn't even them. It was 
Mark Byers and Pam Hicks, who brought him Billy Ray Stewart and Benny Guy, two rapists who were in Arkansas DOC with Baldwin, who had a fantasy story about confessions made to them by L.G. Hollingsworth and Buddy Lucas. The problem for them is that Buddy Lucas was still alive. And Ken Swindle actually had Buddy Lucas appear at the hearing, but did not put him on the stand and ask him about the confession that he allegedly made to Benny Guy. And this is the other thing is somehow Benny Guy and Billy Ray Stewart both knew Lucas and L.G. Hollingsworth. And independently, these two made statements to each of them and their statements were basically that Hobbs and Jacoby were driving around the trailer park looking for weed they picked up Hollingsworth and Lucas they went to the woods Jacoby and Hobbs were having sex with each other the boys came in and Hobbs and Jacoby killed them Uh, and I think both the victims in 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 Benny Benny Guy's I think Benny Guy's case the victim was underage. In Billy Ray Stewart's case, if she was of age, she was in, mentally uh, unable to give consent. So they were two rapists. Um, and uh, Benny Guy. I think Ken Swindle was able to get him out of Arkansas DOC, but he also had a conviction in Texas for a similar rape. And so he went from Arkansas to Texas and went into the prison system in Texas. And interestingly enough, he and Benny, uh, Billy Ray Stewart have tried to exonerate each other by giving each other affidavits that say, I committed the crime that he was convicted for. He didn't do it. He's innocent. So I don't think either one of these men is trustworthy. And therefore, what they said is not reliable, not credible, and not a basis for saying Eccles, Baldwin, and Ms. Kelly are absolutely actually innocent. Um. But that's you, you're speechless. Yeah, I mean, it just I mean, it's honestly the innocence fraud conspiracies. It it's actually I'm trying to I was like while you were talking, I'm trying to work it out in my head. I'm like, I can't even I don't even understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And um, it's been long enough and nothing ever came of it. But I actually helped. David Jacoby submit a complaint against Ken Swindle to the Arkansas bar because what had happened to David Jacoby was he was served by a process server and it wasn't, I think there were flaws in the service, but it was too late for him to go that route and challenge it. Uh, but he ended up, he was served by like a private investigator 
he went to this hearing to be called a murderer in front of TV cameras. And it had upset him greatly. So yeah. he and I, I worked on and helped him with a, uh, a letter to the Arkansas State Bar um, lodging a complaint against Swindle, and unfortunately, nothing was ever done. Uh, the bar did not, did not take action or did not find it to be sufficient to act upon, uh, which is really a shame because um, we included the affidavits which were works of pure fiction. And, um, you know, the circumstances of him being uh, subpoenaed and all that. Well, and that's the, I mean, that's the stuff. I mean, that's what's so weird about, you know, these people that are so concerned about wrongful convictions and the whole innocence fraud movement. It's so hypocritical that they just lose their mind about people that have been convicted by multiple juries multiple times, but yet they have no problem just throwing out unsubstantial accusations Mm -hmm. about anybody, you know, they they have no problem completely, you know, and committing slander or libel against innocent people just because and you you often see them using the same tactics that they exactly. accuse the police yeah. and prosecutors of using against their targets. Yeah, of course. Yep. And they see it as justified because that person is a real killer. So um Yeah, which by their logic, then you know the police would be justified doing anything to get somebody convicted if they're quote unquote, the real killer. I mean, it's just the ultimate hypocrisy. That's part of what frustrates me. Yeah. So, all right. So let's skip forward to 2011. Um, They've done all the DNA testing. They've asked for additional testing. They've gotten it. Um, They have been claiming to have results, but they don't ever release those results or they only release them partially. In uh, 2011, in July, on July 25th, Eccles files a supplemental DNA status report in which he reports that 12 new hairs had been tested. He reported three hairs incapable of testing, eight hairs yielding mitochondrial DNA profile consistent with Chris, and one yielding a profile that was not consistent with any of the victims and excluded Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly, and I presume also excluded Hobbs. Uh, But they don't say that. So then I'm sure people like Ruff will say, oh, well, look, there's another hair. Um, Because it doesn't say it excludes him. But they don't release the, uh, the, the reports. They, this is a summary in a status report to the Arkansas Supreme Court, which got a little testy in 2004 or 2003 because there was this effort to to get DNA testing that was delaying one of Eccles' appeals and it was never done. And he just kept asking for extensions of time so that this testing can be done and extensions of time so the testing can be done. Mm -hmm. So the Supreme Court finally said, okay, look, you you need to tell us what's going on with this DNA testing. 
So he had to send these status reports in. And then that, that started, I think, in like 2005 or 2006. And um, a lot of the reports are available on Callahan. Um, they did change the domain name. And so sometimes if you don't find a, 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 a document, if you get a broken link um, with the uh, some of the documents, if you conform the name to the prior site, you'll find it. Because they 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 haven't they haven't migrated everything over to the new. Uh, okay. What's the new domain name? Uh, hang on a second. Let me tell you. Um, okay. Callahan. Callahan.mysite.com. And that's C-A-L-L-A-H-A-N dot mysite, M-Y-S-I-T-E dot com. Yeah, hopefully some of the folks listening who are interested will actually go read some of the original documents and the original, you know, primary yeah. sources and not just listen to the Johnny Depps of the world, tell them that these guys are innocent. Right. Exactly. Um, so yeah, that is, and you know, like, like I said, sometimes you'll, you'll, some of the documents you will encounter broken links. Uh, it either is alter it, it either. And I've had this happen both ways. It's either trying to go back to the old domain or they haven't transferred everything to the new domain. So if you see callahan.ak.com, put in my site and you'll find it'll go to the document or it'll go to the page. If it's Callahan my site and it's a broken link, put in Callahan 8K because those documents are still out there. Um, and that's, that is, and I, I would suggest go look at the pleadings that are available because among multiple people contributed their time and efforts and money uh, to getting these documents from the West Memphis PD, from the crime lab, from the courts. And it really is worth reading. Um, you can, you know, you can go read the DNA status reports and see that the DNA testing was never conclusive or even exculpatory. Um, not, not having DNA from Eccles, Baldwin, and Kelly is not, Miss Kelly is not in and of itself exculpatory. Nor is finding Terry Hobbs' DNA or John Byers' DNA or even Todd Moore's DNA exculpatory. Um, that is a myth that uh, that is used often in innocence fraud cases. Uh, and ironically, I mean, we have the Ronnie Reed case where his DNA is all over the place, but he's supposedly actually innocent. Right. Exactly. So yeah, there's always a re there's an there's an explanation for everything except the most obvious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you use Occam's razor a lot, and this is another one of those cases where Occam's razor is. You know, the simplest answer is right. the right one. Well, and you mind you, it's been, what, 29 years later, and there hasn't been a single 
credible evidence that points to anybody else. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, you would think after all these, you know, no one's talked, no one said anything. There's not been a deathbed confession. I mean, and again, you think about it. Okay. These three guys are either the killers or they're the three unluckiest people in the world because all of these coincidences perfectly line mm-hmm. up to point to that. Yeah. And I, I had summarized all those coincidences at one time. Uh, and it's had to change a couple times over the years because some things that I relied on were later um, not as reliable as I thought they were at the time of the original trial. But again, you know, if you look at it through the lens of the original trial and what the jury knew, these are all the coincidences. Right. Um, so, yeah, but it's still... I think I came up with like 40 coincidences for them to be, they're actually innocent, but, and the biggest one is every time Miss Kelly has confessed, the only people he's ever named have been Eccles and Baldwin. Exactly. When you're not even mentioning things like that, I don't think get a lot of publicity or like the, the fibers that match the robe. I think Baldwin's mom's robe, the, the purple wax, you know, some of these things that, you know, may not even, yeah. you know, really largely introduces evidence, but still it's like, okay, wait a minute. How could this, all these coincidences work out right. this way? And, and the fibers were a coincidence. Um, they weren't conclusive. They were never, they were never held out to be conclusive. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, but they weren't conclusive. But then again, you know, the, the fibers from the original trial are the same as the hairs from their claims of innocence. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah. No one's looking at those fibers and saying this conclusively means that they're guilty. It's just, you know, if you're going to use the same logic for the Terry Hobbs (laughs) hair, then you have to use the same logic for these fibers. And again, it just shows you all these 100, you know, 40 things that are all worked out coincidentally to point to them. And um, I just saw on Facebook, I saw somebody make the allegation that the state made them enter the Alfred pleas because it was afraid of the liability that it had for their wrongful convictions. Um, so 10 years, 11 years down the line, we still have people who think that the state made them take Alfred pleas that they didn't want to take. This is not true. This is false. Anybody who makes you think the state forced them to take the Alfred pleas, they're lying to you. They're painting it in the light that makes the three killers look innocent and look like the state did something wrong. And that's another problem that, you know, my former co-host and um, my former um, blog talk colleagues have is that they want to presume the worst of the state and they want to focus on the state having done wrong but they don't want to look at the big picture or the whole picture which includes what the killers did um the state didn't make them take the alpha police it said if you want out of prison, you'll take the Alfred plea that your attorney said you would take. 
And it wasn't the state that got Baldwin to take the Alfred plea. It was Lori Davis who made him feel bad because Eccles was supposedly dying in prison or Eccles was going to be executed, which was another lie because it was six years after the Alfred pleas before Arkansas started executing people again. Yeah, ex well, exactly. And I mean, usually, I mean, executions, I mean, if a state executes somebody mm -hmm. within, you know, 30 years is pretty, you know, it's pretty aggressive. I mean, right. they wait and wait and wait and wait. Correct. It's not like they're executed, you know, five years after the murders. And I mean, you know, you've seen Damien Eccles when he got out of prison. He looks pretty healthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you he know, went. He he's he certainly from, enjoying a lot of that all-you-can-eat prison, you know, prison food buffet. He does not look like he is dying. And uh, well, he he went from the Jonesboro hearing. They drove to Memphis, and he was on the rooftop partying at one of the uh, things of Madison Hotel. Until the wee well, hours of the morning. And he also claimed, right, that his inmate next door broke into his cell, you know, chiseled through the brick walls, yeah. came in, raped then, him. Yeah. Then, you know, sealed, you know, left and sealed it back perfectly. I mean, the right. guy. Yeah. That was guy, Mark Gardner. Yeah. And uh, that was actually what happened was he claimed that Mark Gardner was coming in his cell through that hole. And then when it was determined that Mark Gardner would not have fit through that hole, that Eccles had to have been going crawling through the hole, then he said Gardner was forcing him to crawl through the hole. I mean, I would have been on the other side like, yeah, what are you going to do about it, asshole? You know? Nobody's going to make me crawl through a hole in a cinder block wall. Well, and that's always kind of been one of those kind of, I mean, it's, it's definitely the... Yeah theory much like kind of all the crazy terry hobbs stuff that you know well, jason and jason and damien were more than friends and maybe even the boys came across them enjoying their friendship yeah i i i use this uh i've used it with some people and i think damien eccles is probably one of them i would not believe damien eccles is if his tongue came notarized because he <laughs> lies he's a no, liar he uh he said he tells a story First, Mark Gardner's coming in his cell and raping him. Then Mark Gardner's making him climb through a hole to rape him. And then he and Mark Gardner cooked up these allegations because there was all kinds of corruption at the prison and they were trying to expose it. He, and he's a, he's a dog ate my homework liar. Exactly. Because half the time his lies don't even make any sense. They're just, he just says whatever comes to mind to manipulate and get his way. Um, so the Alfred plea came about and, and there's an article in uh, Northwest Arkansas online, the nwaonline.com. And that is a pro killer source. So it's not like I'm quoting from Fox News here. Uh, but Eccles attorneys are quoted as saying the defense had long pondered whether it should pitch a deal that would set their clients free immediately, said Stephen Braga, a Washington, D.C. defense attorney for Eccles. 
The possibility of such a deal first took shape August 3rd in Little Rock when Patrick Banka, another defense attorney representing Eccles, had lunch with an old friend from law school, Arkansas Attorney General Dustin McDaniel. And Banka and McDaniel are now law partners. Banka asked McDaniel if he thought that the state might be amenable to a plea agreement, Braga said, and McDaniel suggested defense attorneys meet with the prosecution, which McDaniel then arranged. At first, prosecutors wanted a guilty plea in exchange for the men's release. Braga told them no deal. The two sides discussed a no-contest plea in which a defendant neither admits nor disputes a charge. Braga then proposed an Alford plea, which allows the defendant to plead guilty while still proclaiming his innocence in court. It stems from a 1970 U.S. Supreme Court case in which justices ruled that no constitutional barriers present a judge from accepting a guilty plea from a defendant who still wants to proclaim his innocence. Um, that is how the Alford plea, it was not the state making them do it. It was their attorneys. And I believe to this day, this was a face-saving measure. They knew they were not going to prevail at the new trial hearings in December. Either something had come out in the DNA testing that was inculpatory as to one or all of the three. And we don't know because they've never released those results. Uh, or they simply realized that what they had was inconclusive and their witnesses were all liars and drug addicts and were not going to withstand cross-examination. On August 9th, 2011, there's another article in NWA online which documents another meeting between Ellington and deputy prosecutors with McDaniel on August 9th. So Braga, Bank has got McDaniel kind of brokering this deal. Mm-hmm. And the AG's office was responsible for all post-conviction work. Uh, the AG's office had attorneys working with the prosecutor's office, the Crittenden prosecutor's office or Craighead prosecutors on the post-conviction claims and the post-conviction hearings and, and pleadings, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so that was something that was going to come out of the AG's budget. Um, Ellington, I think, was just lazy. He really had not done anything to learn anything about the case and was planning on using the new trial hearings as his discovery about the case. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, he didn't know. Had I wish Brent Davis had stayed on and not gotten elected for one more year yeah, to that's get a, yeah. through those new trial hearings. Cause he would have said, if they wanted a deal before the hearing, he would have said, let's talk after the hearing. And he would have said, if they get new trials, I would be amenable to an Alfred plea. Well, and so many of this stuff, people think is just about, you know, Oh, just perfect justice, which, you know, yeah. you like to think it is, but so much of it is just political yeah. expediency. And, and yeah. And it was, and for Ellington, it was, he was, it was political expediency. And not only does it end the new trial hearings and the risk of new trials being ordered, which after 20, uh, well, 18 years by that time, 
would be very difficult to do. Um, it's also ending any post-conviction claims. Like I said, I think Miss Kelly and Baldwin each had state post-conviction claims. They all three would have had federal post-conviction habeas claims up to and including the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and so this would have ended all of that. And so it would have ended it not only for the local prosecutor's office, but for the AG's office. And um, so that was, that was how they decided to make everybody happy. And for people saying, well, the, you know, the prosecutor, if he thought they were guilty, why would he let him go? Because it was the easiest, it was a path of least resistance. For him. Yeah. You know, he knows they're yeah. guilty. And in their Alfred plea, they have to acknowledge that the state could convict him if they did go to trial. So it's in their best interest to enter this plea. Exactly. Um, well, and so, again, sometimes it's just political expediency, right? Mm -hmm. You're just like, okay, these guys have $30 million that they're just going to continue to, you know, berate me. Right. And, just, you know, the, while it is unusual, the only thing unusual is that they actually, they did these pleas before they got new trials. In most cases, an Alfred plea doesn't come into play until a new trial's order. Michael Peterson mm. in North Carolina, he didn't enter out an Alfred plea until he got a new trial. Um, the woman in um, in Florida, whose quote husband uh, Jesse Tafaro, I think her name. I, I remember her first name is Sunny, but I can't remember her last name. Um, she was also on death row in Florida. And she got a new trial and entered an Alfred plea. Marty Tankleth, he got a new trial and entered an Alfred plea. I believe. I could be wrong. Uh, he may have gotten he may have gotten a new trial and then the, the prosecutor decided not to not to re-prosecute him. Uh, so okay, take Tankleth off. But those are two cases where they were granted new trial in post-conviction and then they were they entered an Alfred plea but you know again they were believed to be guilty by the state and they entered that Alfred plea because the state believed him guilty right but the state knew they couldn't be retried or or that you know a retrial would be too risky for the state and just as risky for them I mean you know, an Alfred plea benefits both sides. In in the case of Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly, it got them out of prison right away. And other people, there are other people who say, well, if they got new trials, it would have taken years. No, it would not have taken years. No, it would have yeah. taken nine to 12 months. And if they didn't go to trial in nine to 12 months, if the state wasn't ready to take them to trial, they could have those charges dismissed. And you know, if you're actually innocent, innocent, and you have the evidence to prove it, why don't you want that? Yeah, exactly. Even if you have to wait two years or three years, uh, right? Because then you have the choice again. They all say, "Oh, the," I mean, that's the again. It's the funny hypocrisy because the the fraudsters will say, "Oh, well, the state 
wanted the Alfred plea because they didn't want to pay the money. But then you would say, conversely, well, if you're innocent, wouldn't you want to present your new evidence so you yeah. could sue the state and get all right. of that money? Exactly. And that doesn't make any too. sense. And really, with the Alfred pleas, they didn't, the state really didn't have to have them sign those waivers because with the Alfred pleas, no claim against the yeah, state they're already, would have they, gone they, past. Yeah, they're many, they're guilty. <laughs> the filing. Because right. the state would have just taken the Alfred plea, and it's like it's Let's guilty. Say, yeah, they pleaded guilty. <laughs> they they're guilty. Um, so, and they acknowledge that there was sufficient evidence to convict them in that plea. Um, I think the other thing that was face saving gesture was the statements made in the press after the Alfred plea, in which Eccles Baldwin and Miss Kelly said they intended to pursue exoneration from the outside, quote unquote find the real killers like her yeah um their advocates cited an informal agreement regarding future investigation and the potential for future forensic examination of evidence and ellington did state in interviews that he was willing to consider potentially exculpatory evidence presented to him by the attorneys for eccles baldwin and miss kelly but none of these terms are included in the formal plea documents so ellington is not bound to do anything Ellington is not bound to allow additional DNA testing. Ellington is not bound to send uh, evidence to a lab in California for MVAC testing because Bob Ruff asked him to. Um, the agreements are also silent as to the evidence in the case, its disposition or its preservation. Uh, it is That is governed by state law. But, um, you know, again... It's not in the Alfred police that the evidence is going to be uh, kept by the West Memphis Police Department or the crime lab or, you know, that that the evidence is available whenever they want it to do whatever they want with it. Um, so that is um, I think that's pretty much, you know, we talked about the the informal, the two years wasted on informal um requests for dna testing that were never the way to accomplish dna testing and i think that that was done entirely to plant stories in the media that say we want to do this we're entitled to do this and the state won't let us boo hoo hoo right well you know it's a little bit like you know i don't think we we didn't really talk about it this time, but, you know, the Holly weirdo who's been in the news the last, you know, month, Johnny Depp was a big West Memphis three supporter. You know, he was, a you know, he's a big Aleister Crowley guy, big, you know, mm -hmm. witchcraft guy. And he, so he naturally was, you know, wanted to free these guys, but it's kind of the same thing with his trial. I don't think he necessarily wanted the money. He was just really, he had to file a lawsuit to try to win in the public, in the, you know, court of public opinion. Yeah. I think that's what a lot of these things are yeah. is, you know, Damien Eccles hasn't, you know, he's kind of been irrelevant for what the past, you know, five or six years, no one's giving money to his GoFundMe. No one's, you know, buying his, you know, little magic trick book. And so he's just mm -hmm. got to do something to keep, you know, the celebrities have lost interest. He's got to do something to try to keep his name 
you know, yeah. front and center. So to raise some money. So he probably doesn't really care the actual outcome as long as it generates a little bit of press coverage. Right. And it, it generates, you know, it, it's pardon me. It's going to generate some money to Bob Ruff because he's got those stupid t-shirts. <laughs> I think I'm glad that I have not seen those. Yeah. So, you know, he's, he's going to keep making money. Uh, he'll do another round of um, he'll do another round of episodes when when the <laughs> the DNA testing request is denied because it's a filed in the wrong county. Uh, B, it's three years. Well, it's actually more than three years. It's eight years too late because they had three years after the Alfred pleas, which was 2014, and it's um, using a method that was available at least by 2014. So there's no reason for them to wait eight more years. Uh, and part of that is because his attorneys wasted two years instead of not getting anything from, from Ellington in 2020 and immediately filing a request for the DNA testing in court. Because that's what they needed to do all along. Um, and, you know, I can't say this enough. Bob Ruff never had any right to access to the evidence. He is not an investigator. He is not a state official. He was not even an attorney for the killers. He was in no way, shape, or form officially aligned with the killers or representing them or uh, an agent of theirs. So well, he had no right for anything. And for well, him to imply that he did, again, is lying to the public. But, you know, I, I will say, though, I have to give him a little credit because I think he's like Eccles and Depp, too. He probably knows that, but he also is savvy enough to realize there's a bunch of crazies out there who he can say he's going to do that and then will run to his GoFundMe or Patreon and give him money. Because mm -hmm. he's going to free them. And so, I mean, I will say I will give him enough credit. He is smart enough to realize most of his listeners are morons and will gladly give him money, even if he's completely lying about what he can do. Yeah. Because they're never going to ask for the money back. Yeah. Yeah. So that's always been his um, business model is he's going to go free people from prison. And then, you know, the crazy people will give him money to do that. Yeah. And the thing that's that saddened me and and really made me angry is the media, uh, especially the Memphis media, has now begun really shilling for Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly, or at least for Eccles, um, because they even are the are they're conveying this false impression that the state has some obligation to send evidence off for testing to whatever lab Eccles tells him to send it to just on his word. And these are some of these like Janice Broach are supposedly, you know, the, the law and crime reporters who purport to know what they're talking about. And yet so obviously don't because no state in, in the United States allows a person in prison or out of prison to say 
you have to send tell the prosecutor you have to send this evidence to this lab in California to be tested. Mm. It's always it's always going to go through the courts, right? Uh, and it's always going to be governed by whatever state law is in place for DNA evidence. So, um, but uh, the hearing is coming up on June twenty third. And I predict that it will probably be, uh, the claim will probably be dismissed uh, with prejudice or without prejudice so that he can refile it in Craighead County. Uh, and this is another, another example of how they're just playing to the court of public opinion and they're not really trying to do this legally because I think they know they're going to lose is they file this petition in the wrong county and when the state responds and points out it's in the wrong county they double down and say no it's not nanny it's not that's really weird because that seems like such an easy thing to figure out it is that's why you know they're full of crud the state even tried to help them by filing Eccles plea agreement and in big letters, it says Craighead County, not Crittenden, Craighead. So, um, I, you know, I, I think that they think they have a judge in Crittenden who is going to grant the request. Um, and I, I think they're probably wrong. So, yeah, it's set for June 23rd, 2022 at 9.30 a.m. I am going to look online and see if there is a way or will be a way to uh, watch this hearing or listen to it online. And if there is, I will post a link to it on Facebook. Um, The state has also recently filed its notice of intent to use uh, the transcript of the August 19th, 2020, uh, 2011 hearing in state of Arkansas versus Damien Eccles, case number 16, which stands for Craighead, JCR 93-450. Um, so that is, that's going to be interesting. But like I said, I think it's going to be dismissed either with prejudice or without prejudice so that it can be refiled in Craighead. And then it'll be dismissed with prejudice because it's three years. It's eight years too late. And he doesn't, he hasn't made a showing of, of uh, availability of MBAC testing. All right. So uh, he's got he's to show that when he was doing testing in 2011, MVAC wasn't available. And he's actually got to show that MVAC wasn't available in 2014, which is the last date on which he could have asked for testing under the three year. So he's got to show that MVAC wasn't available until 2021 or 2022, which isn't true. Uh, although MVAC, I got to say, I don't, res- I, I like the information on their site, but they really are very vague about when their casework has been done. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I do know from, uh, court opinions that MVAC was used in investigation of a 2011 
murder in Utah. 2011. Mm -hmm. And the murder occurred September 28, 2011. And MVAC was used. The company that developed MVAC is in Utah. So it was probably being used by uh, law enforcement in Utah. Um, but they, you know, they talk about casework and they received awards in 2013. Um, and I think the FBI began its um, process of validating the technology. Um, but I don't know when that began. I think they didn't finish it until 2020. But that doesn't, you know, that doesn't change the fact that, because I think that's a, a multi-year process. But the burden's on Eccles to prove when and, and how widespread it was available during those times when he could have asked for it earlier. He's got to prove why he didn't ask for it till 2020. Exactly. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I think that is, um, I think that pretty much covers it on the 29 year anniversary of the arrests, which occurred on June 3rd, 1993. What's well, informative and always, as always, and I appreciate all your research. And I would just encourage anybody who, is listening and naturally is angry because they believe that, of course, they were innocent and the small town redneck cops, you know, railroaded some poor Metallica fans. You know, if you want to have that opinion, that's fair, but at least, you know, read some of the documents, read the transcripts, do some research. Don't just listen to other people saying that. Really do some research yeah. before you come to that opinion. Yeah, exactly. Um. And, you know, if you still, after all that research, you still believe they're not guilty, then, oh, well. <laughs> but at least don't. <laughs> at least you have an educated opinion that might be incorrect. Yeah. It, and, and at least stop repeating the bullshit propaganda that's been around in the case since. I mean, I've been involved in it since right after Paradise Lost. So, I mean, I've been doing this for more than 20 years and um it's the same song and dance i wash my hands of it and walk away and then i see the same song and dance coming from other people and i'm like damn why can't this go away exactly. and it never does <laughs> no they always be because just when you think they're they're gonna quietly live out the rest of their lives and shut the fuck up they start a new campaign of propaganda it was it was the dna testing and it was a quote lost evidence that was never lost and it was wanting dna testing and lying and saying the state had an obligation to test it and now it's um going to be that the court was so unfair because they didn't grant dna testing and that's going to be the state's fault. Right. Even though it's not the state's fault, it's Eccles' fault because his attorneys filed in the wrong place. They waited too long to do it. 
They waited too long to file and ask for it. And they didn't present enough evidence to show why they waited so long. Because this evidence has been around since 1993. Yep. And some of it was tested in 2005 through 2011. The ligatures have been tested. Bob Ruff has said, oh, well, nobody untied the ligatures to test the top, you know, the inside, the, the knots. Well, they could have and they should have in 2011. And I don't really trust Bob Ruff's um, assessment of what was done because he doesn't have the actual documents. Exactly. He's just going based on what he thinks they did, probably. Yeah, he's just making yeah. I take his name in vain. That's why I mention it so much. No, I hear you. I, I just hate <laughs> to give I hate I hate to give him publicity because some morons gonna listen to this podcast and be like, oh, they're totally innocent. I'm gonna listen to this goofus who thinks they're innocent and then just give him more clicks. Well, if that if they want to listen to a goofus that thinks they're innocent, that's on them. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> and just I just remember that he got I, fired from a a one engine firehouse because some he was such a good investigator he didn't even realize people were stealing directly from underneath his nose oh god um yeah and i haven't mentioned the name of the podcast which is the opposite of what it actually is yeah exactly it's like bob <laughs> bob ruff so, is bob ruff likes truth like he likes a, a, a golden corral buffet uh-huh uh well he looks like he likes Golden Corral buffets a lot. Yes. Yeah, or is he too? Or is he too bougie for Golden Corral? <laughs> yes, probably. Yeah, probably right. So, well, you know, people up in Michigan, it gets awfully cold, and I think their brains atrophy as time goes by because of the cold. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. So, and his wife made him build that little, that little quote studio. <laughs> so you know he has to go out there when it's cold yes um so yeah um that is uh all right well i guess we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up on sunday night <laughs> um thank you for your patience kyle with my uh, power outages this afternoon because that was very frustrating frustrating well, I'm just glad you're safe. And yeah, thanks for all your research. Another great episode. Appreciate all you um, bringing the actual real primary research to these conversations. Thanks. And thank you everyone for listening to Based in Fact, a true crime podcast with Lisa O'Brien and co-host Kyle. If you like the show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us in two weeks for episode 12, state of oklahoma versus richard eugene glossop glossop was convicted of arranging the murder of his boss barry van Treese, at the best budget inn in oklahoma city on january 7th 1997 we will look at the case against glossop the legal proceedings beginning with his 2007 direct appeal and the claims put forth by a group of oklahoma lawmakers who held a press conference in february to proclaim glossop's innocence until then, have a great two weeks and stay safe. Good night.
Thank you.